Good morning. If you would, turn to the book of James. We're starting in chapter 1, 1 through 4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, Father, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Our Lord, our rock, our redeemer. Amen. Martin Luther did not know what to think of James. He didn't know what to think of it. Uh, He didn't fully dismiss it, but he just did not know what to think of the book of James. John Calvin thought it was fine, so that's good enough for me. James wrote to Jewish Christians in the middle of the first century who were living in Palestine, in that region that we now today call Palestine. They had been recently scattered because of intense persecutions that arose in the city of Jerusalem because the church was rapidly growing. James, uh, very, very unlike Paul, if you're familiar with the Apostle Paul and his letters, You know, Paul begins these letters with long run-on sentences and greetings to this one and to that one. Uh, James doesn't do any of that. Uh, James gets right into it. He pulls no punches, and James comes out, in fighter's language, swinging. James comes out swinging. Uh, His letter has been historically controversial, uh, but very, very practical. I hope you will see if you're not very familiar with it. James, his letter, it feels like a splash in the face. Refreshing. Sometimes it feels like a slap in the face. Convicting and, and eye-opening. Humbling. Uh, but but uh, true to the tone of this letter, one of James's chief concerns for Christians of his day living in that part of the world was how they endured hardship. You heard Chris talk about that to the kids today. He was deeply concerned, and so he comes out right away, quite, you know, with no introduction, just very quickly, talking about how we endure hardships. True faith, and, and you know, we're calling the series True Religion as we begin this, but true faith finds joy in knowing that God has a purpose for suffering. God has a purpose for suffering. And if you don't lose sight of that while you struggle, you can find joy even in the middle of great tragedies or trials. The first four weeks of our study of the book of James is going to focus on how true faith responds to trials because James in chapter 1 keeps addressing this issue of hardship, of trial. Uh, And there are different aspects of our faith while we endure trials of many different types, adversity. And so first we're going to talk about joy. And as we do this, We're going to look at this letter of James. We're going to talk about the author and his purpose and the hope that he had in writing this letter. And that's what today is going to be about. The author of this letter, the purpose of the letter, and the hope that this author had in writing it. Now, the author of the letter was a man needing no introduction at all. But it's been like over 2,000 years, so I'm going to introduce him anyway. This, um, actually, let me just tell you what he said. He addresses himself as James, a servant of God 
and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that? Now, this is most likely, most likely, James, the brother of Jesus, the biological brother of Jesus, referred to in the book of Acts as the Lord's brother. This is most likely one of Mary's other children. The other really famous James in the New Testament, James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of the famous John, this is probably not that James. He died early. Uh, he was persecuted and um, executed by one of the Herods uh, way back in A.D. 44, which is probably before this letter was written. You can read all about how James, the son of Zebedee, was executed in A.D. 44 in the book of Acts. You can go to Acts chapter 12. Here's the other thing. Scholars say that this letter at times strikingly resembles the language that James the Lord's brother uses in portions of the book of Acts. You can check that out for yourself. But this James doesn't take advantage, as he writes his letter, doesn't take advantage of his earthly status by birth. I mean, can you imagine walking around saying, I'm the Lord's brother? And he doesn't take advantage of that. Uh, a scholar uh, by the name of Douglas Moo and uh, I, actually, I'm going to be using his commentaries for most of this series, if you're interested in, in looking that up. Douglas Moo noted how James did not claim authority to speak or to write or to lead based on the fact that he was the Lord's brother. He never did that. Other people may have attributed that to him, including the Apostle Paul. You know, the Apostle Paul refers to James as one of the apostles, not the original 12, but he puts James on the same level of respect and authority as one of the original 12 apostles. But James doesn't do that. He calls himself in verse 1 a servant of his Lord, the Christ. Can you imagine finding out that your brother is the Messiah? And he calls himself a servant of his Lord, the Christ. So our first impression of this man is that he was a man who had reason to be very proud and throw his authority around, but in reality, a man who was very humble and self-effacing. So this James apparently wrote to a general audience. So unlike the Apostle Paul, who was writing to specific people, specific churches, and in specific cities in the Mediterranean world, it's what we call one of the general epistles, one of the Catholic epistles, because the audience is general. He's not just talking to one group of people in only one town. He says in verse 1 that he addresses his letter to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Now, in the middle of the first century, that was highly symbolic language. The 12 tribes of Israel was an ancient reason for Jews to identify themselves, right? The, the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. And yet, after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, he left his church and his gospel in the hands of his 12 apostles who would communicate that truth and that gospel uh, to the rest of the world. So, so 12 is now a symbolic thing referring not only to ancient Israel, but now to the church itself. So the dispersion, or literally in the Greek, the diaspora, uh, referred to Jews who were scattered throughout the world because of various persecutions and, and trials throughout the centuries, the latest one being when they were scattered, Jews who believed in Jesus, 
were scattered throughout Palestine because of persecution. You can read all about that also in the book of Acts. So the phrase here probably meant Jewish Christians around Palestine who were recently scattered because of persecutions in that region. Knowing this, that Christians had come on hard times, that all, all the amazing drama and movement that gave birth to the church in Acts chapters 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6, now they had come on hard times. Their faith had led to direct persecution. So knowing that they had come on hard times, this establishes a reason for writing this letter. The purpose of this letter was James wanted to help Christians put their faith into practice while they went through hard times. They were failing to do that, apparently. As, as we read the letter, this is going to be very apparent as we look at all the letter's topics. Again, Douglas Moo, he writes that their problem as a church, as Christians, their problem was a failure to put their faith into practice. Now we can relate 2,000 years later. Have you ever, if you're a Christ follower, have you ever felt, I am not putting my faith into practice. Maybe in a big way, right? You're like, I don't even act like a Christian. Or maybe in a small way. In this one area, I just can't seem to put my faith into practice. Belief influences our actions. Unbelief influences our actions. And we've been calling this for the last few years practical theology. We need it. And James knows you need practical theology when you suffer. Now, the best way to become competent at anything, I want you to think about this, how have, you been, how have you become competent at the things you do well? You have to struggle with it. To become competent at anything, it's not just about practice, because I had a professor who said, practice doesn't make perfect, practice makes habit. You could be practicing poorly, and you're not going to get anywhere. You develop competence by struggling through something. You know this is true. You won't solve the Rubik's Cube unless you have struggled with it, unless you have thrown it against the wall multiple times, right? And, and then you finally, you finally find joy in solving the Rubik's Cube because you, you know what you've suffered to get there. You know how much you've struggled, and that brings joy and satisfaction once you've solved it. The competency comes from wrestling with the thing itself. And so James goes on to say, and here's, here's the first morsel of goodness, of wisdom that he offers, count it all joy, my brothers. He's talking to all of us because the ancients would, would refer to one another as brothers if you shared the same faith or belief system. So that's all of us. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And so he's telling them that their persecutions and the lawsuits committed against them and their unemployment because of their social ostracization, because I'm not sure if I said that word right, uh, the social pressures put on them causing lawsuits and unemployment and even the famine in that part of the world that they endured. We're going to read about all of this as the letter progresses. He is saying in all of these bits of adversity and hardship, you are developing in faith steadfastness. 
And the word he used for steadfastness, it meant patience, endurance, fortitude, perseverance. Maybe the best-known ancient Greek lexicon for interpreting the New Testament describes the word steadfastness this way. It is the capacity to hold out or bear up in the face of difficulty. Do you have that? Why can the Christian find joy in trials? Why can the Christian find joy because of trials? This is interesting because he's not just saying you can ignore your trials and have joy. That's what Americana Christmas is all about. Forget about your troubles and be joyful for a few weeks. That's not what he's talking about. How can the Christian have joy because of adversity? Because the adversity is being formed. The adversity is the furnace in which God refines our faith. He doesn't make our faith in the furnace of trials, but he forms it, he develops it, he refines it. The joy is experienced by the knowledge that God's working on you. The joy is coming from the fact that you realize God sees me, he knows me, and he's using this like a good coach, like a gentle shepherd, like a wise parent, to make me better, to help me grow up in my faith. You and I need to find joy in knowing that God has a purpose for suffering even when we can't see it. And we don't need the proof of what it's going to look like in the end, but you and I need to find joy in knowing that God has a purpose for what we're going through, even if we can't explain it in the moment. Count it all joy, my brothers. Like a good Jew raised in the scriptures, James remembered Nehemiah's, uh, Nehemiah's, Nehemiah's motto. You remember what Nehemiah the prophet said to the Jews who had been rebuilding the wall, the destroyed wall, and, and they, were, they had to fight off their enemies while they were building the wall to, to rebuild Jerusalem? Do you remember what he said to them? The joy of the Lord is your strength. In the midst of adversity, the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is what James wants every Christian to understand. The reason I take no joy in the Rubik's Cube is because I've never figured it out to this day. I, I have, I have, if you know me, I have patience for a lot of things. I have never had patience for the Rubik's Cube. My mind was just not wired that way. I have never thrown a Rubik's Cube against the wall because I walk away for, from it long before I get that frustrated. I just get started. I'm like, forget this. I'll spend my time working on something else that I have more patience for. I take no joy in anything that I have not struggled through adversity to achieve. I have not persevered. And there's no joy. Happiness can be had, happiness can be had when things go well for you material, materialistically or professionally or socially in your friend group. Um, joy, though, joy cannot be had without coming out of a struggle through which you have persevered. That's steadfastness. See, 
And we live in a culture, I think, that has no purpose for suffering. It, 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 it sees no wisdom or benefit to suffer. We don't want to suffer. Our, our, our medical field, our technology, it's all designed to help us avoid suffering at all costs. Uh, somebody in our congregation recently shared a book with me that, that was um, based on an article from 2015 called The Coddling of the American Mind. How coddling our children, our students, our athletes has become such a phenomenon in our society that even atheistic, secular psychologists are very concerned about the generations that we are raising absolutely petrified of enduring any type of resistance, any type of adversity. And we're part of that system that teaches young people that they should not expect adversity. I mean, if the secular, if the secular atheistic psychologists are saying we are coddling one another too much, it, I think there's a problem. And the Bible is saying that the coddling goes far deeper than our biological instincts or our personal backgrounds and our personal stories or uh, social ethics that predominate our society. The Bible says the coddling and the desire to coddle, it's a spiritual pro problem at, 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 all the way at the bottom. What we're really saying is we don't trust God. Deep down, we don't trust him. We won't let him form us. We won't let him use adversity to mold us into the people that he wants us to make, that he says we have been predestined to become. We want control. The coddling comes from an unwillingness to let God develop us as he sees best. So we're calling this series false, uh, True Religion. Uh, but false religion is an unwillingness to trust God to do what is best. James is going to continue to come back to the idea of false religion. And what I want us to understand right away, as James comes out swinging, is that you can boil false religion in all of its forms down to an unwillingness to trust God to be God, especially in adversity. You see, that's what all the radical extremists around the world are doing when they take vengeance into their own hands. They are not Letting God be God. And that's what you do. And that's what I do when I try to control things in order to avoid adversity. The outcome may not make the newspaper when I will not allow God to work in me. But it all amounts to the same from his perspective. Listen, the hope of this letter the hope of James was to inspire Christians to desire authenticity. Authenticity in their personal faith. Authenticity in their corporate religion. Authenticity in how they are ministering in the world, how they are perceived by their neighbors and the authorities and their coworkers and their relatives. Authenticity. And let steadfastness, he goes on to say in verse 4, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, 
lacking in nothing. Perfect and complete. The idea there is not literal sinlessness. It's not moral perfection. It's not a final state of glory that we think we can somehow achieve before we meet the Lord. That's not what he's saying. I want you to think of it this way. I want you to think of possessing in yourself the complete package. When you think of Christian faith, think of possessing in yourself the complete package because he goes on to clarify what he means by perfect and complete. He says, lacking in nothing. Lacking in nothing. Think of the top athletes or, or musicians or performers or, or think of the people that are at the top of their field. And if you ask them, like if they're, if they're sane, they will tell you they're not perfect, right? You look at them and see perfection, but they will tell you, oh, there are all these things I've got to work on in my game or my technique is off and I need to practice more um, or th- there's this area that nobody knows anything about and I'm trying to get to the bottom of it and I just can't crack it. Right? They are not going to say, I am perfect in every way. But when you look at them, you see the complete package. For what they do at their level, they lack nothing. For you to be competent at your job, you know you're not perfect. But in a sense, you have to have the whole package to do your job well. And that's what James is aiming at. People look at you and they say, That's authenticity. That's a Christian. They're not looking at you saying, that's a perfect person. Forget it. But when they look at you, they see the full package, the whole thing. Not perfect, but competent and example. Somebody they are willing to follow as you follow Christ. That's what James is aiming at. Be like Christ, even in your trials, especially in your trials. Be like Christ. To be a Christian is to suffer. Let me clarify that. To be a Christian is to suffer by God's design. Further clarification. To be a Christian is to suffer by God's design as our Lord Jesus suffered by God's design. And he told his disciples this. A servant is not greater than his master. I'm going to suffer. You are going to suffer. And then the author of Hebrews would say, in Hebrews chapter 2, it was fitting that he, meaning Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, that's you and me, should be the founder and the, uh, I'm sorry, should should, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. God made Jesus perfect through his suffering. He was already morally perfect as the Son of God. But as the Son of Man, to give birth to a new humanity, he had to suffer. Our salvation was completed through Christ's great trial. And so our authentic Christ-likeness will be perfected through our own trials. As Chris said to the kids, we don't want to suffer. And as Chevy said, we don't want to suffer. The thing is, we will not grow unless we do. 
Authenticity. True faith, true religion, living faith is knowing that if you have the grace of God as a gift, you can endure anything. The key to authenticity, just like the key to joy, is knowing that your suffering has a purpose. The key to joy and the key to authenticity is knowing God is at work. I'm not sure where this is headed. I really don't know exactly what he's doing. I wish I knew what he was doing. I wish he'd tell me what he's doing. I wish I could read the end of the book. And James is telling you right now, this is all you need to know. He's perfecting you. He's completing in you the full package. There it is. We have it. We, we never have to ask again, God, why are you allowing me to suffer? We will. We will. We will keep grumbling and complaining and asking him why we have to go through the things we go through. And James is saying, I'm telling you why you have to go through the things you go through so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And if you're willing to receive the gift of God's grace, his unmerited eternal favor, then you'll stop asking him, why? Give me an answer I absolutely must know. When Paul asked the Lord Jesus to relieve him of suffering, Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. You develop the full package as you struggle in weakness to trust me and love me. Authenticity is knowing that if you have God's grace, you can endure trials. And as David discovered in his trials, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall lack nothing. True faith finds joy in knowing that God has a purpose for suffering, that God has a purpose for your suffering. It's not the subjective thing that humanity must suffer. It's I must suffer. It's you must suffer. And he is working for you in your suffering. Because he has a purpose for you, he intends to perfect you through your trials, we have to let him. We must trust him to do what is best and, and not try to dictate the terms of our suffering. Find joy in knowing that God has a purpose for your suffering even when you cannot see what that purpose is. So we've come out swinging uh, because James did. And now we're going to spend a few months looking at what James believed, the Lord's brother, what James believed was true religion, active faith, living faith, authentic faith. That's what our society needs. This is a new election cycle. Lord, help us all. But you're going to hear lots of people over the next 12 months tell you exactly what you and everybody else needs. James is telling us right now what the world needs most are Christians whose life and worship and witness is authentic. Let's discover it together. Let's pray. Our Lord, we praise you for this beautiful, short, powerful letter. 
We ask you for eyes to see, for ears to hear what you are saying to us through it. Father, we ask that you would authenticate our faith, that you would prove that it is real through our trials. Father, we confess we don't want to suffer. We don't want to deal with pain. Forgive us for not wanting to receive and accept your model for development that we must suffer as our Lord did. Father, as we struggle, give us joy in knowing that your son thought of us and thought of you as he suffered. May we always think of him and our adversity. And may he change us so that we, each of us, are perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. In his name, amen.